Hey everyone, um, today we're reading from Mark. If you can please stand with me. Today's scripture reading is Mark 11, verses 1 through 25. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will bring it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are, you, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And he, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thanks, Grace. That was a, that was a hefty one. You nailed it. You nailed it. Well, um, after a few months uh, in series examining the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we did 10 weeks doing that over the summer and then the last three weeks kind of church vision and kind of where are we and where are we going and what are the core things we're kind of calling ourselves back to. Um, it's time to jump back into the gospel according to Mark. 
which, which really has been our main kind of teaching agenda for the last year and a half and some change. Um, and you might be wondering why we would take, um, you know, when it's all said and done, just over two years uh, to work through a long-ish biblical book like this. And our desire is, A, a we, just, we just value the scriptures incredibly highly. Um, but our desire is why this book specifically early on in the church's life is to make a lot of space to just keep returning week in and week out to the person and work of Jesus. And, you know, Jesus is on every page of Scripture, and the Holy Spirit inspired all of Scripture, and, and the, certainly the biblical books other than the four Gospels are worth our time, and we're going to give our time to them. But there's something about just coming again and again and again to the stories about Jesus uh, that, that we just wanted to, we wanted to be formed in that in these early days as a new church. We thought that was really important to get immersed in his character, his teachings, his miracles, his, all of his activity in this world, all of which leads into the central point of the entire biblical story. And, and we would say, if you're a Christian, I think you, you would say this, the central point of all of human history. That's a lofty thing, but, but that's what, that's what, that's what the scriptures claim, which is Jesus' death and resurrection. So, so we want to make sure as a young church community that we are getting to know the voice and the heart and, and, and the mind of our shepherd, our savior, our king, our God. And if you're here, I assume there's some of you here um, that, that aren't sure what you make of Jesus. That's why you're here. You're like, I don't know. Let's check out this Jesus stuff for a minute. See, see, see what it's all about. Um, these ancient eyewitness-driven biographies that we call the Gospels are absolutely the best place to go to continue to explore him. And our, our goal here is just to faithfully keep presenting the Jesus we find in these pages and to see what he does. So all that said, let's, let's just take a second, let's pray again that the living God would meet us this morning here as we seek him in these pages, okay? Let's pray. God, we are here uh, to hear from you. And there is, there is a monumental claim behind, behind the, this ancient book that we're reading, Lord, which is that it was not only the, the work of human eyewitnesses, eyewitness testimony, put together by people who, who lived and walked with you and, and passed their story along to, to Mark, in this case, who wrote this one. It's not only that, Lord, but, but it's in some way authored by you, by your Holy Spirit. It's inspired by the Spirit. It, it's superintended by the Spirit, Lord. And so when we come to these pages, the, the crazy, scandalous, uh, maybe to some foolish claim is that we are hearing your words, Lord. We pray that we'd have ears to hear exactly what you have for us this morning, that we would catch a glimpse of Jesus, the Jesus that wasn't just a historical figure, but a Jesus that we believe is alive and well, sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting to return, but that you can commune with us here and now, Lord. So, so help us avail ourselves to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, this, this passage is not only a long one, um, but it's a weird one. Did, did you get that? There's like a handful of very, very strange things about this passage. Um, so first of all, just the mere fact, the mere fact that Jesus upsets people like, people's expectations for himself. But, but then he has this weird episode with this fig tree. And, and, and the text even goes so far as to say it wasn't, it wasn't season for, for ripe figs. 
and Jesus curses this fig tree. It's the only like negative miracle Jesus ever performs where he curses this fig tree and you're like, what in, <laughs> like to me, honestly, the first times I read this, I was like, and even when I repicked this passage up to teach it this week, I was like, what? <laughs> this seems to fly in the face of everything we know and love about Jesus. Then there's the episode of him, him kind of cleansing or judging the temple where we, we see the only time really that Jesus gets physically aggressive and you could even say violent. He's turning tables over. He's kicking people around. He's not letting people pass through. And you're like, whoa, what, what is this? Um, not to mention just the, the pretty out there teaching he gives us about prayer. You know, you pray with enough faith, you can have a mountain cast into an ocean or whatever. So all of that, plus just the question of like, what is this? Why are all these stories side by side? What is Mark getting at with, with this? More than that, why did God superintend history this way? It's just weird. We can call it that. Um, but, but there's a lot to unpack, but, but there's a phrase, I think, that will help us bring all of these disparate stories together and, and, and I think justify teaching this as one text. I think, I think it's meant to be one text, um, which is this. The phrase that captures the essential theme of this string of stories is appearances can be deceiving. Appearances can be deceiving. There was a time, we know this, I mean, we know this in very, very simple, superficial, silly matters. There was a time when I was in high school. I don't know why. I drank so much milk in high school. I don't know why that is. It's just, it's neither here nor there, but a lot of milk, okay? And I loved milk, and there was this, there was this time I got home from basketball practice and I was like raiding the fridge and I pulled out the milk and there was, you know, a good, a good bit of it left. But I saw that the expiration date uh, was like one day away. It's one day away. And I was like, Mom, I don't know about this. And I put it back in the fridge and she was like, Cameron, that's, that's still good. You know, she was like offended that I was going like to basically reject the milk that still has a whole day left. And it's usually good even past the date. And I trusted my mom, friends. I think you know where this is going. This is disgusting. I, I, poured, I poured the rest of it into a giant glass and <laughs> I pulled the, turned the glass up to my lips, gave it a smell, nothing weird. Began to drink just chunks, chunks. It was like half milk, half cottage cheese. And I spit it all out in the sink. I was like, mom, I told you. <laughs> So I, I, don't play around with, uh, I don't play around with expiration dates anymore. It's probably a little bit irrational. But look, the appearance, the number's good. By all accounts, this thing should be good, smells good. At first glance, it's good. The reality, it's not good. Things get, you know, maybe, maybe more serious, maybe, maybe less serious, depending on uh, your view of such things. But I was thinking about fake like, you know this, uh, this uh, what, what do you call it? Uh, a trend of people purchasing fake likes for their Instagram accounts, you know? So you have a few Instagram followers that, man, I gotta beef this thing up. I've gotta look like a, like a real influencer here. So you basically pay money to this company that's got like farms in Bangladesh or something with people just like creating fake accounts and liking your, you know, 10,000 accounts will like your, your profile or follow your profile or your post or whatever it, whatever it is that you've paid for to beef up kind of social media recognition. So the, the end result is, you basically don't know. You see someone who's got a gigantic following online. Maybe it's real. Maybe it's sincere. Maybe it's genuine. Real people following and interested in this person. Or maybe it's fake. 
Maybe it's fake accounts. The appearance is one way, the reality is another. Of course, it gets into more sinister and serious territory as well. Um, of course, it applies even to um, Christianity, to churches, to leaders, to disciples in general. You know, as Paul wrote in his second letter to Timothy, there are some who exist, quote, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. It's very, very common to find stories, and, uh, and, and they get boosted as well, but they, they happen far too often to people who have the appearance of trustworthiness, the appearance of safety, the appearance of peaceableness, the appearance of Christ-likeness, appearance of spirituality. Then when you peer below the surface, you just go, oh, no, 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 this is not what I thought. This is not what I thought. And it can have devastating, devastating results and consequences. So, so in this story, we have this dynamic, and, and Jesus is, it's, it's applied to Jesus, and it's applied to these other areas as well, specifically the worship of Israel at the temple. Jesus is going to confound expectations about what kind of king he's going to be and what kind of worship he's going to expect. And a surface look at these questions might yield one thing, but if you dive into the depth of the truth below the surface, the, the genuine story is far different. So to make sense of it, we break this long story into five movements. So let's jump in. The first is what we might call the triumphal entry, or as we'll say here, the king enters his city. So I'm not going to read this in, in, in part because it's already been read, but also in part because Josh Wilder uh, taught this story out of the Gospel of Luke just four, four or five months ago, and he did a great job. You can go find that if you want to know a bit more about what, what was going on here. What is the meaning of the triumphal entry, Jesus entering Jerusalem on Holy Week. We'll just say a few things about it briefly. For us, we recognize that this day that Jesus came in is what we call Palm Sunday, marking the beginning of Holy Week that concludes with Good Friday and Holy Saturday, and then it's followed by Resurrection Sunday, Easter. Um, so, so Gospel of Mark, we're, it's letting us know we have now entered the final week of Jesus's life leading up to the crucifixion. The, 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 the last remaining chapters of Mark all cover that span. Um, and this time, for them, that's, that's, what, that's the significance we attach to this day now, but for them, this was, uh, this was a, a jam-packed time where, where all these pilgrims were coming into Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And Israel would have just been jam-packed with, with all these Jews coming in to celebrate in the city. And so there's so much hustle and bustle, and this is the same time that Jesus chooses to come in, enter the city. And this also marks a second major shift in this book because the first one was, was this. When Jesus started his ministry, he would do amazing things, amazing teachings. He would give hints about who, his real identity that, well, this isn't just some spiritual dude. This is God. Like, this is the Messiah. This is the king. This is the one we've been waiting for. And that story kind of culminated with the story of the transfiguration, which was when Jesus took a few of his key disciples up on a mountain and he let his divine glory show. He, like his skin shined forth, whiter than you could even imagine. His clothes were beaming white. And it was like his divine glory was revealed. He basically said to his disciples, yeah, all this stuff you've been assuming, let's just lay the cards on the table. Yes, I'm God. The booming voice of God from heaven says, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. It was this moment of... of confirmation of who he was. So that was the first big turning point. Here's the second one. 
where, where that identity, the, 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 the immensity of who Jesus actually is, is not just for the disciples now, but it's going to be made known more publicly. It's going to be made no, known more publicly. This is when Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah King to Israel at large. He, he, he doesn't shy away. He doesn't say, hey, stop talking about me. Hey, let's quiet down with that king business. He receives it. He receives it. He's publicly receiving the affirmations of these crowds in Jerusalem as their Messiah receiving a, a, a royal entry. That's why we call it the triumphal entry. It's the king riding into the capital of his kingdom. That's what this moment represents. And so while the people are celebrating Jesus as the expected king in so many usual ways, they're, they're laying their cloaks on the ground that he, that he might travel across those. They're laying palm leaves on the ground. They're declaring that this is the coming of the kingdom and its glory, that he's the son of David. They're calling out, Hosanna, God saves or save us. Amidst all that, Jesus makes this really weird choice. He makes this really weird choice, which is he does not come on a war horse. He does not come with as much splendor as, you know, a typical king would, as other kings had, as other messianic figures had, in fact. No, he comes lowly, humbly, peacefully on this young donkey. He doesn't get the war horse. He gets a young donkey quite intentionally. And that had been prophesied in Zechariah 9.9 that this is how the Messiah would come. But it still must have been an incredibly strange sight. This is the one. This is the one, probably what they're thinking, who's going to get our Roman oppressors off of our back, throw them out, establish Israel as it's meant to be, reestablish the kingdom in all its glory. That's who we're expecting. But it's this enigmatic guy on a donkey riding it. So the discord there between what's expected and the reality is, is what Mark wants us to see. And it all begs the question, what's he going to do? This is the king, some of them believe. This is the king. Here's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the one we're waiting for. What's the first order of business, Jesus? What will his first act as the publicly acknowledged king be? Is he going to raise up a volunteer army? Everyone, go get your swords. Go get your swords. Meet me in, the, meet me in town square or whatever. We're throwing the Romans out. We're going to go behead Herod. We're going to take back what's ours. Is that the move? Is he going to go sit on a throne in Herod's palace? What is this king going to do? All right, Jesus, what's the agenda? You're the king. Let's do it. Tell us what's up. That leads us into movement two. What does he do? He entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple, the center of, of religious life for Israel, the place where, where the most important aspects of worship happen. He goes there, he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Okay, <laughs> interesting. Jesus goes to the temple and he looks around. This is Jesus taking stock of what's happening at the epicenter of Israel's religious life, the place where prayers were offered, the place where ritual sacrifices were made, the place where it was believed the presence of God in, like, dwelt amongst the people inside that temple. Jesus goes there to see what is going on here in my temple. And if anyone had known, if any of the people like in the temple or the, certainly the, the temple priests, anyone like that had known that this was God incarnate, the God of this temple coming in to check up on things, they would have been terrified. This, there is nothing worse than like your boss coming to like audit your work. You know what I mean? 
there is nothing worse than like you, you've got your rhythms, you've got your way of doing things like, oh, by the way, like the district manager is coming to make sure everything's all right here. Like we all just like clam up and it's like, oh man, I don't, I do not like this. This is that times infinity. This is the God of the universe coming to say, how's worship going here? How's, how is being my representatives going here? How is housing the very spirit of God in this temple going? So he goes and he observes and then he leaves. He goes back out. He goes back out to this, to, to this town called Bethany, back on the other side of the Mount of Olives. You've got the Mount of Olives here, and then you've got the Temple Mount here, valley between. So it's just about two miles to get back across the Mount of Olives, back to Bethany. So that's where they're kind of uh, setting up shop for this week, Jesus and his disciples. So they, they came in for this, they leave, they go back to Bethany. And the story's not over. Okay, we keep going. Movement three. The king judges a fruitless tree. On the following day, got a good night's rest, they came back from Bethany. They're going back towards Jerusalem. And Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. He, 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 when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So, oh, poor buddy. Um, so let's just name it. Let's name it again. This is weird. It is okay to look at this story and be like, I have no idea what's happening here. It's very strange. It's very strange. It's a weird thing to do. He sees a fig tree that wasn't even in fruit-bearing season, and he supernaturally curses it. And as we read on, we're going to see that the tree did, in fact, wither and die. So, so this is the final miracle Jesus acts in Acts before his crucifixion and resurrection. It's a strange one. Why this? It's unique in that it's a negative death-bringing miracle rather than a sort of positive life-bringing one as he was known for. So what's going on? Well, what, what you have to know is that agriculturally, that through, though it was the season, it was not the season for, for fully grown figs. It was still the season for the leaves to appear and for if the leaves were appearing if, if figs were going to be produced when it was fig season there would be little green fruit on the tree like like kind of proto figs or whatever and so for anyone to see this tree from afar and to see that it was leafing they'd go oh great there's probably the little mini green figs that i could go and i could find um and in fact those were actually a, an ancient near eastern delicacy uh for what that's worth so so they're assumed they see that they see the leaves they see the leaves from afar, they think, great, the, the, the fruit should be about to be produced. When they come closer, they see, oh, it's actually not there. This tree is diseased or there's something wrong with it. Though from a distance, hear, hear this, from a distance, it looks like a healthy tree. From a distance, it looks like a healthy tree. When he gets close, he actually says, oh, this is not going to produce any fruit. What this was signaling from afar is not the reality up close. You hear that? You hear that? Closer look revealed that this tree was not, in fact, in possession of the health that it advertised from a distance. And most scholars agree that Mark's little detail that it was not the season for figs clues us in that, that, that Jesus wasn't primarily looking for food here. He would have known, Jesus would have known, like, even if this tree was perfectly healthy, I'm not going to be made full off of this tree. What this clues us into is that Jesus is, is acting out a prophetic declaration or a parable or a spiritual truth like one of the Israelite prophets of old. 
Have you heard the story of Isaiah preaching naked for three years in Isaiah 20? The Old Testament prophets would do the most wild stuff. It was wild. Three years this man preached naked about this coming destruction. Like it, it was an enacted way to show like that what was about to happen to those he was, he was prophesying to. That's the kind of world that Jesus is operating in here. He's, he's doing an action packed with spiritual significance. So let's just, let, we, can, we can at least say with confidence, Jesus is not irrationally flying off the handle here. He wasn't tricked by this tree and angry about it. He's chosen a moment to enact a spiritual object lesson for his disciples, like the prophets. He's the great prophet. Here he is, living out that identity. All that said, you still may be wondering, okay, so what? Like, what's the lesson? What could possibly be the lesson? Movement four. The king judges a fruitless temple leadership. They came to Jerusalem, past the fig tree. They're back into Jerusalem. It's, it's now Monday. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city again. So Jesus returns to the temple that he had observed the previous day. Now he's ready to act. It's ready for him to, to make good on what he's seen. What does he do? He erupts. Jesus erupts. He does fly off the handle. Not that he's not in control of his faculties here or whatever. Certainly not that he's venturing into sin, but Jesus lets it out. He lets his heart, what's going on in his heart, be made very, very physical. And he disrupts the entire economy in the temple courts. The question is why? Okay, now we're getting into the heart of it here. So he's frustrated, I would say, we, from the text, we have three things we can at least say. There may, be, may have been more than this, but we can at least say three. First, he's just frustrated about the new economic arrangement. You know, it was normal. It was normal. It's, 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 it's stated in the law that uh, there should be uh, birds sold for, for, for uh, sacrifices. That was actually an accommodation for the poorest in Israel. If they couldn't afford a lamb or whatever, they could buy a cheap bird, and that could be their sacrifice. They could still participate in the sacrificial system. So that's all good. It's not wrong that, that birds were being sold. That was fine. But what we know historically is that... Um, all of this used to take place actually on the Mount of Olives outside of the temple courts and it appears from, from contemporary historians that sometime around the year AD 30, the temple priests decided to move all of that into the outer courts, actually the courts of the Gentiles. That's gonna be important. So the priests probably with financial incentive were like, hey, why don't we move all this selling and money changing business actually into the temple and then we could probably get a cut of it. It'll just make everything easier for everybody, but you know, we, can, we can take a little bit off the top. It's probably what was happening. So that's one thing. This was a new development in the life of the temple that we can assume Jesus was like, no, 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 no. Second thing, it's significant. It's significant that this happened in the outer courts, which is known as the court of the Gentiles. 
And we know that's significant because Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That's, that's from Isaiah. Here's the idea. The outer court, which is where the Gentiles could come if they weren't full converts yet to Israel, they could come to these outer courts and they could participate in some form or fashion. They could get close to the temple, not all the way where a a Jew could, but they could get close. And the idea is that God has always wanted Israel. We talked about this last week. Israel was meant to be a signpost to the surrounding nations, like come and see, come and find the glory of this God. He is actually for you as well. They were meant, their relationship with God was ultimately meant to be invitational to the surrounding nations. And here it is, Isaiah mentioning this very fact. This is meant to be a house of prayer for all the nations. But listen to the, that, that clues us into this passage. Let's read the wider, two verses on either side of that. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. You hear that? Come and see, come and worship, come and participate in the goodness and glory of this God. That was the heart. But in this financial arrangement, I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of animals that would have been brought into the court of the Gentiles. What we're, what we're meant to see here is that actually, though this was meant to be a place where they too could come and pray, now it's, it's impossible. Everything's crowded out. There's no room for anybody to do anything spiritual. This is where the money, the wheeling and the dealing is happening. It's the loudness of the animals, the money changing, all of that. And those who might want to come and pray to this God from afar, there's nowhere to do it. There's nowhere to do it. It is not, in fact even able to function as a house of prayer for the nations because of this. So the the court of the Gentiles specifically is crowded out. Number three, we can assume that there was a gouging of prices against the poor. He quotes that next part of Jesus' statement there, you've made it a den of robbers, comes from Jeremiah 7. I'll read the surrounding verses there as well. Jeremiah says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, only to go on doing these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. The idea here is that these are people who are engaging in all kinds of things contrary to the goodness and heart of God. And then they come into the temple like, we're good, we're good. It's fine, we're good. We've received refuge from God. And he's like, don't use me and my house in that way. Do not use me and my house in that way. Jesus says, in some sense, what's happening when he enters the temple on this day is in fulfillment of all of this. They're presuming that because they're there inside the temple that all is well and all is good and they are faithful. 
And that, that robber language is, it's, most scholars agree that it's probably quite literal. Like these, there's probably inflated prices for the, for the items that were sold. Even the exchanging of money into the temple currency, all of it was probably people just taking off the top, taking off the top, taking off the top. And you know who that hurts the most? The poor. The poor, the downtrodden, the vulnerable. Those that the heart of God beats for most passionately. So there's at least three things that are happening in the temple. And Jesus says, I am done with it. Sorry. <laughs> no, and I'm not sorry. Jesus says, I'm done with it. He, he lets it rip. And you might be scandalized by that, or you might see it as good news. You might be scandalized by that, or you might see it as good news. Here's what I'd say. I acknowledge, we all have to acknowledge that, gosh, sometimes people have a really hard time giving themselves to Jesus and to Christianity because of religious hypocrisy. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're here, and like part of the reason you're wrestling, and maybe you've been even walking with Jesus for a long time, but maybe you're in a period of doubt and struggle where you're like, there's so much about Jesus that I find good and true and beautiful. I'm so much I'm drawn to. But there's so much about his church that I just, oh, I just can't get over. Yeah. Here's what this text says. If that's you, this text lets you know Jesus agrees with you. Jesus says amen. Jesus says, I am frustrated. That doesn't mean Jesus agrees with everything we might want him to be in agreement with or whatever, but at a fundamental level, he says one of the most volatile things to him in his heart is religious hypocrisy. It's profaning his worship. It's losing the heart for the outward pretense of the thing. It's forgetting the heart of God amidst the ritual or whatever else. Jesus shares your frustration. If I could be so bold to say it, he's far more angry about it than you are or that I am. And I want to be angry about it. I think I need to be angry about it as a pastor or I can become very dangerous in this role. But he is far more angry with a pure, undefiled, clear-eyed, sinless anger born from his love for God and his love for people. This was the sight that got Jesus more visibly worked up than any other in his entire life that we know of. We should let that weigh on us, friends. To summarize, though at the temple, everything looked healthy and good from a distance. Sacrifices are happening. The poor are being accommodated. Oh yeah, we still have the court of the Gentiles where people from the surrounding nations can come. You get closer and you get a real full look at what's happening here. And the heart was corrupt. Its time had come to an end. One more movement. Movement five. The king teaches about genuine faithfulness. So, another day. We're now to Tuesday. They passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. So Jesus wasn't just yelling angry stuff. He was enacting something with his words, the same way God does. The tree died, withered away. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Do you see it? Do you see the interplay between these stories now? 
This isn't random stuff jammed side by side. Do you remember the tree that looked good from a distance? But when you got up close, you saw that it was not healthy. It would not produce what it was meant to produce. So it is with the temple. That's why these, sandwiches, these stories are sandwiched and wedged together like this. So then Jesus, Peter brings it up. Jesus, he gives, he gives an interesting sort of statement here to kind of sum up, sum up this story. His answer is this. Have faith in God. Simple enough. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. I'll pause there for a second. Let's remember this again. Two mountains. Over here, Mount of Olives. That's where Bethany is just beyond. Over here, the Temple Mount, where the temple, temple is. We've seen Jesus come down through the valley, back to this mountain, back to sleep over here in Bethany, and now they're back again over here, Mount of Olives, by this fig tree. What are they looking at? They're looking at the Temple Mount. They're looking at another mountain, quite literally. Quite literally, Jesus and his disciples by this, olive, by this fig tree are looking at another mountain. And Jesus says to them, what this, what this is, well, the fundamental issue here is faith in God, genuinely trusting our God. He says, look, whoever says to this mountain, this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes it, it will come to pass. So yes, this is a teaching about having faith in prayer, God's power to respond to prayer. Yes, he goes on and makes that more explicit. We're not, we're going to return to that idea. But I just want you to hear that this is also like this meta commentary about the fact that Jesus has come to his people. The true king has come into his city. He's gone to the heart of its worship, the temple. And he said, this is done. It's not that the temple was a bad idea. It was God's idea. Temple is beautiful. Temple is amazing. But it has been squandered by the people. It's been corrupted. The heart of worship, the heart that all of it was meant to produce is gone. And Jesus is saying, its days are over. Historically, this was, you know, a little bit after AD 30 that this was all taking place. AD 70, the Romans would finally destroy the temple. The temple would be done. It would be gone. In fact, Jesus is going to give more <laughs> condemnation of the temple. He's going to talk about it being destroyed multiple times. He's going to predict it. We're going to get into some of it in Mark, and it's in the other Gospels as well. But this is a moment where Jesus is saying, even this, even this mountain, as a result of faith, is going to be thrown into the sea. So don't miss that. This is another statement of judgment. But it's also a lesson about faithfulness and prayer and trusting God. It can be both things. And his, his lesson is the key to, the, to, to life is not ritual. It's not formula. It's not rote activity. It's faith. It's faith then expressed in prayer. A faith, a faith expressed in prayer that, that's so trusting of this God that you could ask for the most outlandish thing. And he doesn't mean, you know, like expect the craziest physics experiment to happen if you pray. He's using this as an extreme metaphor for us to just say pray boldly expect big things pray not because you are entitled to anything but because you serve a god who is capable of anything 
absolutely anything. So have faith in God expressed in prayer. And then he ties that in. He ties that in in verse 24. I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, it will be yours. So pray boldly. And whenever you stand praying, listen to this, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. He, he ties it as well back into giving and receiving forgiveness. So Jesus is just picking up these just key themes of the gospel. Have faith in our God. Just trust him. Just throw yourself at him. Believe that he is capable of whatever of anything and do it with an eye towards forgiveness. Remember, you must be forgiven. We all have sin that needs to be forgiven by this God and he is willing and able and Jesus is about to go enact the very thing that makes it all possible on the cross. But forgive that you may also be forgiven. That's just another one of those. We are meant to be transformed by the forgiveness that we receive to become a people of forgiveness that freely extend it to others. We who have tasted it, we become vehicles of it towards others. This is the heart. This is the heartbeat. This is what genuine, if we, could, if we could tie our themes back in here, this is what faithfulness, fruitfulness looks like. This is what fruitfulness looks like. It's not about appearance from a distance. It's about having genuine faith in this God, that he is powerful, that he is good, that he is forgiving, and to let that faith then transform you that you might be a vehicle of those things to other people. And yes, even a herald of this gracious forgiveness that this God brings. That's the heart. So there's a warning for us in this whole passage, which is we can be so attuned to the outside, to appearances, to our rituals, that we miss the very heart of worship itself. Even coming here on a Sunday, we're not a highly ritualistic church here, but it is so possible to come into a gathering like this and go, oh yeah, I'm going to tick my spiritual, spirituality box for the week. Yeah, God must be so pleased with me for, for getting up at 9 a.m. on <laughs> Sunday and coming here or whatever. Um, yeah, let's just do the thing. It goes to far more insidious levels than that, of course. It is so easy to be settled, to be happy, to be content with exterior, outward-facing acts of piety that we miss the very heart of worship itself, which is faith in God, love for God giving and receiving of his forgiveness, prayer, vital connection to him. So let us be warned by this, even as we also see a promise in this passage, which is this. The reality is we're all compromised in this way. I am. I'll just speak for myself. I am compromised in this way. Still, walking with Jesus for decades now, I know so often I'm just more concerned with what I look like on the outside than actually pursuing vital abiding in our Lord. I suspect that's the case for many of you as well. And you know what? Jesus is about to go to the cross for that. Jesus is about to deal with that finally and fully. He is about to pay the price for our sin in our stead. He's about to offer us forgiveness for our trespasses. The gospel is not just get your act together or at least look like you have it together. It's that you cannot and Jesus did it for you. 
He did everything necessary to reconcile you to God and to neighbor. He dealt with everything that ails you. He deals with your sin. He deals with, deals with your guilt. He deals with the inevitability of death even by promising you, like him, a life after death, a resurrection. And more than that, more than that, Jesus promises the very thing we spent weeks talking about in the Holy Spirit series, that the reason Jesus can say, like, look, the temple's about to be destroyed. The reason he can upend it all, the reason he can say this thing's over, the reason he can give these prophecies later that says, oh yeah, it's going to happen, is because that's not actually the end of the temple per se. The temple was just going to be transferred to you and to me. On Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit of God rushes in and baptizes each of the people of, of Christ, they become the temple. You have, if you are in Christ, you have become that temple. That was the master plan. It didn't need to be this one building in this one place. But once again, for all nations, you become the home of the Spirit of God in this world. Whoa. So Jesus promises us that as well. He hasn't spelled it out for us, but we'd be foolish not to connect that theme. That the temple building may be going, but the promise, the promise of the temple is going nowhere. It's going inside you and inside me. That we might carry him with us. Be his hands and feet in this world. So, that's the promise. That's the promise, and that's a promise available to everyone, everywhere if they'd simply trust Jesus, have faith in God, believe, however you want to term it, and become a part of this story that he's telling. So, 25 verses, pretty wild. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is so good. He's so good. And though it may be scandalous to see him doing these extreme things and turning tables over, it's because that fundamentally he loves you. And he is not content to see all of these things perverted and destroyed and mistaken. And he's going to do everything necessary to tell a better story. And he's done it. So we're going to celebrate that this morning, all right?